that erosion of this core concept of platform immunity from liability for user-generated content is really the heart of free expression online. They should not forget that. The simple idea being the motivation of platforms to protect free expression will be destroyed if they bear liability for user-generated speech and they will be very ready. Uh, they'll err on the side of overtakedown and they will take down speech that's not illegal or defamatory just to protect themselves. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 11th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Alina Polyakova and I spoke with Eileen Donahoe, the executive director of the Digital Policy Incubator at Stanford University. There's no shortage of controversies roiling right now about free expression and the future of the internet. From platforms aggressively removing misinformation and disinformation about the ongoing pandemic, to President Trump's recent executive order targeting Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So we wanted to take a step back and review the landscape of online speech as a whole to get a more holistic sense of what things look like right now and where platforms and governments might be headed when it comes to regulating speech. Eileen spoke with us about the various debates over content moderation taking place within the United States and around the world, and made the case for why international human rights law should be used as the framework for both protecting and moderating online speech. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 11th. Eileen Donahoe on Protecting Free Expression Online. So Eileen, uh, we wanted to have you on the podcast to discuss some big picture questions about what it means to protect free expression on private sector platforms and how human rights can be part of that picture. So as an initial matter, uh, just tell us about how you got involved in this space. Great. Well, first, thanks so much for including me in the conversation. Um, So how did I get involved in this space? So basically, I was involved in human rights work from the time I was in college And then I really focused on international human rights law when I was at law school. That was before the advent of the internet. And then I lived in Silicon Valley for several decades and through the development and the building of the internet. And then I had this incredible opportunity uh, during the first term of the Obama administration to serve as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Human Rights Council. And that was kind of at the height of the internet freedom movement. And it was a much more optimistic moment about the potential of technology to expand access to to information and facilitate free expression for civil society. And basically, everybody was very optimistic about civil society being ahead of authoritarian governments in their use of technology. And it was a very exciting moment, sort of also during the Arab Spring. And um, I was deeply involved in the passage of the first UN resolution on internet freedom, which laid down this foundational concept of human rights needing to be protected in the online digital realm as they are in the offline realm. Then, you know, then the Snowden revelations broke, Um, the sense of optimism started to erode, 
I ended up going to work at Human Rights Watch and did a lot of work on cybersecurity and human rights and internet governance. And so basically since the 2016 U.S. presidential election, I have been based at Stanford at the Global Digital Policy Incubator, which is housed at the Cyber Policy Center. And we focus almost exclusively on the impact of digital technology and technology policy on the enjoyment of human rights and on democracy. Um, And we are advocates for use of the international human rights law framework in governance of digital society and also to guide governments in how to regulate tech and how to guide private sector companies in how they uh, self-regulate and help protect human rights. So Eileen, thank you. What I find so fascinating about your answer is that through your own history, you just took us through the entire arc of euphoria around the freedom of the internet to now this increasing contestation between not just democracies and authoritarian states who are seeking to control that online space, but even between democratic governments and, of course, the social media platforms, which enabled all of these uh, people's movements and people's revolutions. But now uh, we're very much seeing this struggle unfold between government's desire to regulate platforms um, and their desire to, of course, remain unregulated. And I think if we pass forward just to where we are today, um, obviously no longer in that euphoria uh, phase, uh, the latest culmination of that struggle, I think, very much comes in the recent conflict between the White House and President Trump and Twitter, uh, which, of course, the president loves to use uh, liberally. And Twitter's flagging of some of his tweets as uh, misleading information um, and deleting them uh, from his feed. And this prompted the president to issue an executive order, uh, basically revoking, though we don't know if that is even possible, Section 230, which we've talked a lot about on the podcast. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that and the kind of confusion that we find ourselves in when it comes to this regulatory space? Yeah. So let me just start with the general sense of confusion. Um, as you said, that there there's tension between democratic governments. There's also tensions between democratically oriented governments and the private sector. Um, so it's not just about democratic world vis-a-vis the authoritarian world. It's inside the democratic context and also in relation to private sector companies that think of themselves as platforms for free expression where this confusion sits. And my general take is that well-intentioned, democratically oriented governments are confused about whether they want private sector platforms to exercise more power and take down more speech than governments can take down, or if they want them to exercise less power and take down less speech than they're already doing. And there's a divide within governments. I think Democratic governments are also confused about their own power and whether, how, and for what reasons they should be regulating private sector platforms and how to do it without undermining free expression. Then on the private sector side, even though these platforms think of themselves as vehicles for free expression, 
they are confused about what their responsibility is in terms of protecting the speech of users, how that relates to their own power to exercise their own free expression, and then how both of those manifestations of free expression are in tension with what could be called the free expression interests of the society at large. Um, and that has more to do with the quality of civic discourse and especially around elections. So let's go right at the Trump executive order, which to me was, even though ostensibly it was supposed to be about protecting the bedrock principles of free expression, I think it had very little to do with free expression. I, I think it has to be understood um, large, first off, as a political stunt, um, I think it, it, the, one of the real motivations there was simply to distract people from the fact that we crossed the 100,000 mark of deaths from COVID. And I also would say, you know, it was part of the, Donald Trump's modus operandi, which is just create conflict, create chaos, create a sense of division, division to distract people. And on some level, it really constituted an abuse of power where he was basically threatening private sector platforms with retaliation for exercising their own free expression because he didn't like that expression. Um, this, this is what we expect from authoritarian governments. And it was kind of an ominous thing to feel the, the president of the United States using the power of his office to go after American private sector platforms. But the reality is free expression principles, whether you're looking at it through the First Amendment or international human rights law, don't require private sector platforms to provide an outlet for disinformation or conspiracy theories, which is basically what we're seeing in Trump's tweets. And Twitter's move to put a fact check label on a tweet is not censorship. So the tremendous irony here is rather than censoring Donald Trump, Twitter is actually providing a incredible megaphone. He's amplifying his voice massively. I think he has 80 million plus followers now and started came into office with something like two to three million. So I would say that the executive order simply was a, a manifestation of and a deepening of the confusion that we feel around these subjects. Thanks. That's, I think, a really helpful sort of untangling of everything <laughs> that was going on with that executive order. And you you touch on something that I found really interesting in the conversation around the order, which is that, um, you know, on the one hand, the order really was something that was worrying, even if it doesn't have any legal effect, um, it does seem like it could potentially chill these social media companies from taking action, like, for example, uh, labeling the president's tweets or something like that. On the other hand, as you also point out, it arguably was a distraction from the sort of various disasters going on in the United States right now, um, the pandemic being the most obvious one. So I'm curious for your thoughts about how how we should balance, you know, on the one hand, recognizing that something like that can be a distraction, and then also recognizing that the distraction itself may be 
something that is in itself quite dangerous, right? How how do we hold those two things in our mind at the same time? Oh, that that's such a complicated question. I mean, let me just I will state my view, which is I think Donald Trump is starting to increasingly manifest the tactics of authoritarian governments. And so I think that's an important lens through which we should start to understand his modus operandi, you know, his his effort to distract from real societal issues, especially where he might be at fault, to distract from criticism of his policies, his, his inept response to COVID, for example, uh, as well as his instinct to create division. The chaos and the confusion that was generated by the executive order actually goes to a very real and genuine debate happening in the United States in a, you know, across party lines about the potential revocation of CDA Section 230. And what is really disheartening to me as someone who cares about free expression both as an American trained under the First Amendment and as an international human rights lawyer, is that both parties, both Republicans and Democrats, are strangely throwing out the core commitment, throwing under the bus the core commitment to free expression of users for their own wrong reasons. You know, so both sides are clamoring for revocation of 230, but for opposite reasons. On the Republican side, I kind of see it as a little bit of gamesmanship, sort of the working the refs issue. Uh, They say they want the private sector to have less power to remove speech because they feel the platforms are biased against conservatives and they should be punished for it. And so, again, revocation of immunity is a a form of retaliation for the perceived bias against conservatives. And they're also a little confused about whether private sector companies have to adhere to the same standard as governments under the First Amendment. On the other side of the political spectrum, I would say for the Democrats, the animating energy is still really understandable sense of anxiety about discourse around elections. There's still this sense that speech on platforms on the margin probably could have affected the outcome of 2016. And they haven't been able to figure out what to do effectively with when it comes to combating disinformation, whether it's foreign cross-border info ops from the Russians or Chinese, or it's organic domestic civic discourse that is also disinformation. And so their solution somehow is to revoke 230, even though none of that disinformation would have even been covered by 230. It's not illegal and it wouldn't have provided a basis for uh, civil liability. So it's, it's, it's sort of doesn't make any sense. And at the same, so they're, they're almost looking at the wrong target. That is not the solution to the problem they have. And they should be looking at other vehicles of, for regulation, on obviously on transparency about political advertising, 
transparency around how the rules are interpreted on platforms, how they're applied, transparency about algorithmic promotion and demotion that's happening under the surface, those kinds of things. But I would really caution both Republican and Democratic political actors who think they care about free expression, that erosion of this core concept of platform immunity from liability for user-generated content is really the heart of free expression online. They should not forget that. The simple idea being the motivation of platforms to protect free expression will be destroyed if they bear liability for user-generated speech, and they will be very ready. Uh, They'll err on the side of overtakedown, and they will take down speech that's not illegal or defamatory just to protect themselves. And so I think everybody is looking almost at the wrong solutions, the 20th century approach to a 21st century problem. And they have to start getting more creative about alternatives rather than focusing on 230. You know, Eileen, I wanted to go back to something you said at the onset when you were talking about how you got into this space. And that's about the idea uh, that human rights uh, should be uh, the founding framework for our approach to digital regulation. Uh, Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Because I think it's not a direct association between international human rights law and uh, private sector regulation by government. So what's what's the link there? How can international human rights law actually be the basis for understanding digital regulatory policy going forward? Okay, so uh, several things. Um, First obvious thing is that since we're talking about global digital platforms that have, where there's global dynamics uh, on free expression, I think international human rights law basis, which is recognized globally, is a much better starting place than the unconscious embrace of the First Amendment by many of the American companies. They're close in spirit on the merits of protecting free expression, but one of them is internationally recognized. The other one is not. Um, And certainly the First Amendment sits at one end of the spectrum on really limiting the potential to restrict speech. I would say also that whereas the First Amendment only applies to government and in fact says Congress shall make no laws restricting speech, The international human rights framework, yes, it was originally conceived as creating obligations on governments, but in more recent developments, there is an understanding that private sector companies bear a responsibility to respect these principles. So they are a very natural starting place for global private sector companies and this idea that they should be thinking about the human rights implications of what they do. Third and last thing I would say is that the starting place for substantive analysis under international human rights law is Article 19. And Article 19 does provide much more leeway to both governments and the private sector in considering restrictions on speech uh, well beyond the First Amendment 
that have negative consequences for things like national security, public health, and I would argue the integrity of elections. And so it just provides much more leeway for the private sector to consider the implications of what they're doing for the society at large. Thanks, Celine. I think one of the fascinating things you point to, um, and I say this as someone who doesn't come from a human rights uh, background, um, is once we shift the lens to thinking about, first and foremost, the security, protection, and rights of the individual, um, the regulatory framework kind of comes into focus in a much more profound way because it structures the specific areas that should be prioritized uh, versus um, issues, let's say, around even, I would say, election interference becomes sort of a secondary issue. I mean, election interference on digital platforms specifically, that almost becomes a secondary issue to ensuring the individual rights of human beings. Um, and I think that's, to me, kind of the profound flip um, that what you're suggesting implies. Um, but let me just follow up on that, because you started your answer talking about kind of the global nature of this. And of course, if we shift the lens towards um, a human rights, individual rights foundation, um, that already sets us up to thinking about these issues globally versus from the perspective of nation states. And the, the trends that we're talking about here are not just specific to the United States. Um, there's also a, a huge amount of these kinds of trends that are being manifested in Europe. There are lots of regulatory proposals on the table. We've talked about some of them on the podcast. Um, but can you talk a little bit about you know, what's been happening um, in Europe, where, of course, there is no uh, expansive vision of freedom of speech like we have in the United States in the First Amendment? Yeah. So to, to your first, uh, the start of your question, I, I almost see a triangle of interests on free expression under Article 19 of the International Human Rights Framework. So there's the individual users' free expression. There, we have to recognize the free expression rights of the platforms themselves, certainly coming into play when they create uh, community guidelines, terms of service. And then there are free expression interests of society. And those things all need to be factored in. And similarly, and this is where Europe really comes in, free expression doesn't have to be thought about in isolation. Private sector platforms should also be thinking another triangle of interest is the right to privacy, how it relates to free expression, as well as the right to democratic participation. And this is where if disinformation, even if it's not illegal, is undermining the right to democratic participation, that is a very legitimate concern for the private sector or governments if they care about protection of human rights. So I just think it helps broaden the perspective for, especially for American private sector companies that they can legitimately be thinking about the interests of privacy and democratic participation as well as free expression. Europe certainly has felt that the American platforms has, have not been responsive and certainly not been adequately concerned about the societal interests in speech, privacy interests, or the integrity of elections. 
And so a number of regulatory moves have been made um, that reflect their frustration, but most of them are problematic for their own reasons, uh, if, from my point of view. NetsDG is, you know, the sort of the starting place, which the German law that required takedown of illegal content that was defined in a rather expansive way and imposed liability on the private sector for failure to do so quickly enough. And what that law did and what's wrong with it, there's so many things wrong with it. Too many, too many things are illegal, first of all. Too many things are criminalized, like defamation and things like that. But it also shifts judicial function to the private sector. And so that's kind of a rule of law problem. The private sector is expected to assess the criminality of speech. So that's not a good model. And then similarly, the, the UK has a white paper um, that they're, they've been working on for a you know, c- couple years now about the, the, the potential liability for harmful speech that's not even illegal. So it's, it's sort of requiring the private sector to take down speech that the government could not and also to bear liability for it. And so, um, again, this both of these kinds of laws motivate the private sector not to protect free expression, to over, over restrict speech. And I think they're both, again, this idea that they're a reflection of a 20th century kind of approach using a content basis as the only way to approach regulation of platforms. Rather than liability for what users say, they should be thinking about liability for what the platforms do themselves proactively. So let's move then to what I think is is a instance in which a lot of people have been cheering pretty aggressive content moderation, which is the ongoing pandemic. A lot of platforms have been really sort of taking the opportunity of the pandemic to really crack down on health misinformation Um, on the argument that this is sort of something that's different from, say, political disinformation. This is something that immediately endangers people's lives. So what do you think about that? I mean, in in your view, is addressing health misinformation different than the other aspects of free expression? Or is there a danger that this content moderation will creep into the realm of free expression that you're concerned about preserving? So I think it's a great move and it's the right move. And it does reflect the ability of the private sector to, uh, A, manifest their own speech and their own interpretation of Article 19 under international human rights law, which, by the way, provides an explicit exception for legitimate restrictions on speech to protect public health. So it's right there in the text. This is this is one way in which it's so different than the First Amendment. And so the idea that private sector companies should be stuck to the same limitations on, as the U.S. government under the First Amendment is just a mistaken understanding of their own free expression liberty and their free expression responsibilities to users and to society. And so I think absolutely it's the right move. I would go a step further 
which is really, um, I, I have always considered myself a more of a free expression purist, you know, not only as an American, but even in law school, I had Gerald Gunther, he wrote the book on the pure approach to free expression. And as I have looked at the deleterious effects of private sector platforms on the integrity of elections, which has bearing on the other human right, which is to democratic participation, I am definitely shifting and starting to see the um, leeway for the private sector to be more expansive in their own interpretation of what they're allowed to restrict under Article 19 in order to protect the integrity of elections. And so I'm starting to feel like disinformation, certainly about time, place, and manner of elections. That is, I think that's a no-brainer, and I think the companies generally understand that. But I think they even have leeway to go a bit further in um, ensuring that they are not amplifying disinformation that will even dissuade voters from coming out. It's sort of a subtle form of voter suppression, a passive form of voter suppression through disinformation. And I would argue that there is more room there rather than less room. And that's different than what might be allowed for the U.S. government. Yeah, I mean, let me just follow up on that because, you know, one of the balancing acts here and that's coming out so, so clearly around how platforms are approaching health misinformation around COVID um, is the governments, you know, in some of the legislation you described, um, have been clamoring for platforms to do more. They are doing more. And now, you know, they're facing a huge amount of pushback, not just from President Trump, but from others as well, that they are taking too much of a heavy-handed approach and starting to infringe on freedom of speech and kind of wade a little bit into censorship even, right? And so the question to me is, you know, how do you strike that balance? You know, I, I know that it's fun to beat up on Facebook and Twitter and everyone else, but, you know, it's a challenge for the companies as well to figure out what that balance should be um, and how to really please everyone on all sides, it doesn't seem to be possible. So what are you, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, Facebook has set up this oversight board, which we talked a, lot, a bit about as well. Um, is that the way forward? Should other companies be taking similar measures, um, setting up these sort of pseudo legal entities to help adjudicate content moderation cases? Or how do we kind of go from here? Okay, so first off, I. We, we don't want all the platforms to be the same. So diversity uh, of platforms is a good thing if you care about free speech and pluralism. Uh, so they shouldn't all have the same rules. And so that's an aspect of their own free expression, the power to make rules about what speech is prohibited on their platforms. Okay, so Pinterest doesn't have to be the same as Reddit. And... Google search rules and Facebook community rules don't need to be the same. So I think we have to look at the different powers. They have the power to make rules about what speech to prohibit. Those are their own rules. They're already exercising that power. And they generally don't map perfectly to the First Amendment anyway. And so 
it's not censorship when they don't adhere to the First Amendment. It's the rules are an expression of the platform's own speech. I think one of the really interesting things that's come up in this recent episode, especially with Mark Zuckerberg's interpretation of his rules about whether Donald Trump's tweet about when the looting starts, the shooting starts, he personally embraced the power to interpret the rules. That's a really potent thing. And I think that this is where the external oversight board will come in and put a check on that power of interpretation. But at the end of the day, had a different group of people had the power to make that interpretation that was more diverse, it probably would have been deemed a violation of the rule and it would have been taken down. So I do think that power of interpretation is really important. We also see Twitter didn't exercise the power to take down, even though they noticed uh, they uh, determined that same tweet to be incitement to violence and a violation of the rules. They chose to exercise their free expression in another way, which was to put a label on it. Again, that's their free expression. That does not a warning label or a fact check label is not censorship. I think that all of those things that are kind of above the surface, power to make the rules, power to interpret the rules as long as you're transparent about it, power to label, uh, those are express, uh, manifestations of the private sector's own speech. I think we should put much more attention on the powers under the surface that aren't getting much attention, or they, they were starting to get attention. This is much more about the business model and the power to promote and demote in you know sort of that gray zone of um, what's happening under the surface through algorithmically um, feeding people information in a differential way and how that affects civic discourse. Those are the kinds of things that should be the focal point of regulators rather than the actual rules on speech, which are a manifestation of the private sector's free expression. So let's move to the sort of broader geopolitical context here. Um, one thing that Alina um, and you have both written about is uh, this idea of digital authoritarianism. And I wanted to ask sort of to what extent you you see any movement toward uh, that and away from democratic governance. But let's start off first, if you could just give our listeners a definition and then talk about whether we seem to be drifting in that direction. So I would delineate between the drift toward digital authoritarianism in the authoritarian world and now this unconscious drift in, in, a, in the more democratic world. For me, the way I would define it, it is when a government utilizes digital tools with respect to domestic situation, the citizens, for authoritarian purposes, to surveil, to censor, to control the population, and to restrict freedoms and liberty, whether it's freedom of assembly and association, tracking and monitoring, limiting, censoring speech by, you know, with firewalls, access to information, or even um, flooding the zone of speech so that civic discourse is controlled. That, that is what it looks like domestically. It, another dimension of digital authoritarianism relates to the export of 
surveillance and censorship technologies to other regions so that those same uh, authoritarian utilization of the tools is replicated. A third dimension is really about, it's, it's also about exporting digital infrastructure, but in a way that the data and information can be utilized by the authoritarian government itself. This is sort of the concern about Huawei in the 5G debate and what's happening with the data generated through that infrastructure. Um, and then last but not least is a much more subtle dimension of it, which has to do with sort of erosion of norms in the international arena, in international fora where technology governance is being discussed. And that's where we see an erosion of commitment to human rights principles. So that, that's what I see sort of on the authoritarian side. But we also, I think there's a growing concern about this unconscious drift toward digital authoritarianism in democratic societies because of governments utilizing digital tools for the same reason without thinking through the implications, facial recognition technologies and new forms of digital surveillance that are just being embraced uh, without thinking through the implications. And Another second dimension I would mention on the on the democratic side is just sort of a loss of confidence in the feasibility of adhering to their own democratic values and human rights commitments in a digital context. And that's that's goes takes us right back to the beginning. This is where all this confusion about what does it look like to protect democratic values and, and human rights in a digital context becomes so problematic. So Give us a sense of, given everything we've been talking about, the confusion around digital policy, uh, the drift towards digital authoritarianism, what avenues do you still see for strengthening commitment to democratic values in our modern digital societies? I think we absolutely need a renewed effort to rebuild the, the transatlantic alliance. That's number one. And to to recognize what's going on globally and that failure to ha- to shore up that alliance means that democratic values will no longer be the dominant narrative and the norm globally. We are quickly moving in the wrong direction. And uh, as I said, Donald Trump is a major manifestation of that. And he's been a very consequential figure when it comes to protection of democratic values and human rights in the digital realm. Very consequential. So I think the U.S. election is 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 a big moment, but I do think rebuilding the transatlantic alliance around adherence to human rights in the digital realm is very important. And I would also say we need sort of a rejuvenation of the Freedom Online Coalition, which was originally founded for this exact purpose. And this it's been a little bit floundering but um, I'm hopeful that they can recognize the moment and bring new energy to their purpose. All right, let's uh, leave it there on that that hopeful note. Um, Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. 
You can find past episodes in the Love Your Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.